Before I pray, I want to speak to parents in the room. If you have your kids with you this morning, um, we're going to be talking about Sodom and Gomorrah. We will talk a lot about sexual sin, a number of different sins. It will be pretty adult topics this morning. Won't be graphic, but if you're not ready yet to have those conversations with, with your kids, when I pray in a moment, that would be a good time to to slip out with your kids and take them to children's ministry or youth ministry. You can take them there now and then come back and join us. So if you'll join me in prayer. Heavenly Father, we come before you this morning desperately in need of your grace. Lord, as we look at a passage that is full of sin and pain and destruction, we come before you and we plead with you to give us eyes to see and understand how good you are even in the midst of what happened in Sodom and Gomorrah. We pray, Lord, that you would humble our hearts, that you would make us teachable and moldable before you. We pray that we might see you more accurately and live with you more truthfully, Lord. Father, meet us here and teach us through the story of Lot, we pray. All for the glory and renown of your son, Jesus Christ, in whose name we pray. Amen. So if this is your first time coming to Grace Bible Church, wow, (laughs) picked a doozy of a morning. This is not what we're usually doing here at Grace. Actually, most of our study of Genesis has been quite pleasant, really. Last week was Genesis 15. It was all about Abraham's faith. Next week is Genesis 22. It's all about Abraham's obedience. Two of my favorite chapters in the whole Bible, but in between, we have Genesis 19. The story of the destruction of Sodom and Gomorrah and all that happened to a man named Lot. And looking at Genesis 19, we have to ask ourselves, why would God include such a horrific, horrible story in our Bibles? It's interesting, I've noticed in my kids' Bibles, you will not see anything about Sodom and Gomorrah. Um, Rhyming Bible, the Picture Bible, the My First Bible, none of them talk about Genesis 19. They they all leave it out. And frankly, if, if I was writing a children's Bible, I would leave it out too because this is really horrible stuff. So why would God include such a painful, awful story in the Bible? Let me answer that question by sharing an illustration with you, an apocryphal story about a battleship at sea at night in a heavy fog. A lookout on the battleship sees a light in front of them, and so the captain tells the radio operator, signal that ship. We are on a collision course. Advise you change course 20 degrees north. Well, the message comes back. Advise you change course 20 degrees south. That surprises the captain, so he radios back. I'm a captain. Change your course 20 degrees north. The message comes back. I'm a sailor, second class. Advise you change course 20 degrees south. Well, now the captain is furious, and so he radios back. I'm a battleship. Change your course. Message comes back. I'm a lighthouse. Your call. (laughs) In the rolling seas of life, there are unchanging rocks unmovable truths that we find in God's word, some of which are very uncomfortable truths, truths that we would rather not read about, truths that I would certainly rather not preach about. But whenever we come face to face with those unchanging, unmovable, uncomfortable truths in the word of God, it forces us to make a decision. Will we submit our lives to those uncomfortable truths and let them guide us to safety, or will we ignore them and go our own way? 
That's what our society has chosen to do. We live in a a postmodern society. So truth is relative. Truth is whatever you want it to be. You are the one who defines what is good and what is right and what is true for you. So if there is a truth that you don't like that is uncomfortable to you, you can simply ignore it and set it aside. Often we in the church handle truth in the same way. We don't want to be unpopular. We don't want to look like we're closed-minded. We don't want to stand out. We don't want to be ridiculed. And so we just go with the flow. We stay silent about those uncomfortable truths in the Bible. We ignore them and live as if they weren't real because we would prefer to be happy and, and to fit in and to be popular and to be successful than to take an uncompromising stand for the truth. And because of that tendency within all of us to just go with the flow, God has given us passages like Genesis 19 to remind us in no uncertain terms, you can only ignore the truth for so long. That captain can ignore the lighthouse as long as he wants. He can get mad about the lighthouse as long as he wants. But if he doesn't change course quickly, everyone on that battleship is going to die. That's what Genesis 19 is ultimately all about. God wants us to understand if we ignore his word and set our own course in life, one day we will run head first into the unyielding truth of God. And when we do, it will destroy everything we hold dear, just like it did for Lot. So this morning, we're going to look at his tragic story. We're going to begin with an overview. I'm going to walk you through the events of this section of Genesis so that you know what happened, how this story unfolded. And then based on that story, we're going to draw out four unchanging, unyielding truths from the word of God. So let's begin with an overview. Let's look at this story. Turn to Genesis chapter 18. The story that we're looking at this morning, the story of Sodom and Gomorrah, actually begins in the previous chapter, chapter 18. God shows up and visits Abraham. God shows up, and at the beginning of the chapter, it's really very happy. Everything is nice. God is promising a son to Abraham. But then things get a little sadder later in the chapter. Chapter 18, verse 20. And the Lord said, the outcry of Sodom and Gomorrah is indeed great, and their sin is exceedingly grave. I will go down now and see if they have done entirely according to its outcry, which has come to me, and if not, I will know. So after promising Abraham a son, God warns Abraham about Sodom's doom, about what's going on in Sodom and what God is going to do to Sodom. And that breaks Abraham's heart. He knows people in Sodom. He loves them. And so Abraham pleads with God, God, will you show mercy to this city? Look in verse 23. Abraham came near and said, will you indeed sweep away the righteous with the wicked? Suppose there are 50 righteous within the city. Will you indeed sweep it away and not spare the place for the sake of the 50 righteous who are in it? So Abraham pleads for Sodom and God says yes. God agrees or grants Abraham's request for mercy. If there are 50, I will spare it. And then Abraham talks him down. 50, 45, 40, 30, 20, 10. God agrees. If there are as few as 10 righteous people in Sodom, I will spare the entire city. That's where chapter 18 ends. Chapter 19 picks up the story in Sodom. God visits Lot in the city of Sodom. Look at chapter 19, verses 1 through 3. Now the two angels came to Sodom in the evening as Lot was sitting in the gate of Sodom. 
When Lot saw them, he rose to meet them and bowed down with his face to the ground. And he said, Now behold, my lords, please turn aside into your servant's house and spend the night and wash your feet. Then you may rise early and go on your way. They said, However, no, but we shall spend the night in the square. Yet he urged them strongly, so they turned aside to him and entered his house. And he prepared a feast for them and baked unleavened bread, and they ate. Chapter 19 begins with angels arriving in Sodom to test the city. These two angels show up and Lot greets them. He shows them hospitality. He bows before them and welcomes them into his home for a feast. But he also foreshadows what kind of city Sodom is. No, don't don't spend the night in the square. Don't do that. We find out why in the next verse, verse 4. Before they lay down, the men of the city, the men of Sodom, surrounded the house, both young and old, all the people from every quarter. And they called to Lot and said to him, where are the men who came to you tonight? Bring them out to us that we may have relations with them. Sodom commits its first sin. This is homosexual lust. Every man in the city, from the rich to the poor, powerful to the weak, shows up at Lot's door because they want to have relations, meaning having sex with these two angels. Well, Lot can't allow that to happen by the customs of ancient hospitality. He must protect the men in his house. So Lot comes up with a compromise. Verse 6, but Lot went out to them at the doorway and shut the door behind him and said, please, my brothers, do not act wickedly. Now behold, I have two daughters who have not had relations with man. Please let me bring them out to you and do to them whatever you like. Only do nothing to these men in as much as they have come under the shelter of my roof. He's offering what you think he's offering. Lot doesn't want to lose face, lose respect in the city. He's welcomed these men in his house. And so to protect his reputation in a culture that valued hospitality, he offers his two virgin daughters to be raped by the crowd. Verse 9. But they said, the crowd, stand aside. Furthermore, they said, this one came in as an alien. Already he is acting like a judge. Now we will treat you worse than them. So they pressed hard against Lot and came near to break the door. Sodom commits its second sin. They're not interested in Lot's compromise. So now what they're going to do is commit homosexual rape against Lot and against his visitors. It is at this moment, finally, that God steps in. If God wouldn't have stepped in at this moment, Lot's whole family would have been killed in this mob. God steps in and he rescues Lot. Let's pick it up in verse 10. But the men reached out their hands and brought Lot into the house with them and shut the door. They struck the men who were at the doorway of the house with blindness, both small and great, so that they wearied themselves trying to find the doorway. The angels rescue Lot from the crowd by striking them all blind. Then the angels rescue Lot from the doom, the destruction that is about to come upon Sodom. Look at verse 12. Then the two men said to Lot, Whom else have you here? A son-in-law and your sons and your daughters and whoever you have in the city, bring them out of this place. For we are about to destroy this place because their outcry has become so great before the Lord that the Lord has sent us to destroy it. Lot went out and spoke to his sons-in-law who were to marry his daughters and said, Up, get out of this place for the Lord will destroy the city. But he appeared to his sons-in-law to be jesting. They don't believe Lot. Divine destruction, that seems laughable to them. There's no way this is going to happen. Verse 15, when morning dawned, the angels urged Lot saying, Up, take your wife and your two daughters who are here or you will be swept away in the punishment of the city. But he hesitated. So the men seized his hand and the hand of his wife and the hands of his two daughters. For the compassion of the Lord was upon him. And they brought him out and put him outside the city. When they had brought them outside, one said, Escape for your life. Do not look behind you and do not stay anywhere in the valley. Escape to the mountains or you will be swept away. Lot hesitates. 
After all that just happened in Sodom, he still doesn't want to leave the city. He loves it that much. He hesitates, so the angels have to literally drag him and his wife and his daughters out of the city. And then they send them on their way, and we move to the next section in the story where God destroys Sodom. Verse 23, the sun had risen over the earth when Lot came to Zor. Then the Lord rained on Sodom and Gomorrah, Gomorrah, brimstone and fire from the Lord out of heaven, and he overthrew those cities and all the valley and all the inhabitants of the cities and what grew on the ground. God utterly destroys Sodom and everything around it. Every man, woman, child, animal, and plant is destroyed. Then finally, the last part of the story, God allows Lot's family to disintegrate under the weight of his foolish choices. Verse 26 But his wife from behind him looked back and she became a pillar of salt. She looks back lovingly at Sodom. She still wants to be in Sodom. The moment she looks back, boom, she's dead. Verse 30, Lot went up to Zor and stayed in the mountains and his two daughters with him. For he was afraid to stay in Zor and he stayed in a cave, he and his two daughters. Then the firstborn said to the younger, our father is old and there is not a man on earth to come into us after the manner of the earth. Come, let us make our father drink wine and let us lie with him that we may preserve our family through our father. So they made their father drink wine that night and the firstborn went in and lay with her father and he did not know when she lay down or when she arose. On the following day, the firstborn said to the younger, behold, I lay last night with my father. Let us make him drink wine tonight also. Then you go in and lie with him that we may preserve our family through our father. So they made their father drink wine that night also. And the younger arose and lay with him. And he did not know when she lay down or when she arose. Thus, both daughters of Lot were with child by their father. It's interesting. These Women, Lot was able to bring his daughters out of Sodom, but he wasn't able to take Sodom out of them. They act just like Sodomites. They use sexual sin to get what they want in life, a child. It's ironic. Lot was willing to let his daughters be raped by the crowd, so the daughters return the favor. That's where the story of Lot ends, with incest with his own daughters. This is the last we hear about Lot. This is the end of his story. It is an utter and complete tragedy. One of the most painful stories that you will find in your Bible. Why did God give us this incredibly tragic story? To reveal to us four unchanging truths in life. And to show us in no uncertain terms what will happen to the person who ignores these truths. So that's where we're going to go next. I'm going to walk you through the four unchanging truths that we discover in the ashes of Sodom. The first truth that God wants to show to us in this passage, truth number one, God is terrifyingly righteous. God is terrifyingly righteous. I don't enjoy reading stories like this. I don't like stories about divine judgment, the flood, Sodom and Gomorrah, the great tribulation. I don't enjoy reading any of those stories. I really would prefer a more sanitized Bible. Like my kids' Bibles, they're way more fun to read. It's all of the love, none of the wrath. It's exactly the kind of Bible that you want. But, but that is not reality in the universe that we live in. Because God has been very, very clear with us. He warned us from the very beginning, the penalty of sin is death. Whether through natural consequences or through the divine wrath of God, the penalty of sin is death. Sin will kill you. God warned us, but God is righteous. He must uphold his law. He can't just turn away and not look at our sin. He can't sweep it under the rug. 
If we expect a human judge to uphold the law, how much more must God uphold the law? He made it very clear at the very beginning of creation, the penalty of sin is death. God must be righteous. He must uphold that law. The penalty of sin is death, and the Sodomites were incredibly sinful people. They were exceedingly wicked. We learn that actually all the way back in chapter 13, long before the events of chapter 19, decades earlier, God had said, now the men of Sodom were wicked exceedingly and sinners against the Lord. They were sinners. We see that clearly in 19, but what exactly is their sin that brings this wrath of God upon them? Chapter 19 doesn't tell us explicitly. The book of Ezekiel does. Ezekiel chapter 16 Behold, this was the guilt of your sister Sodom. She and her daughters had arrogance, abundant food and careless ease, but she did not help the poor and needy. Thus they were haughty and committed abominations before me. There are three sins mentioned in in this verse that brought divine wrath upon Sodom. The first is pride. They were prideful in their hearts. The second is a lack of care for the needy. They did not care about the poor. The third, abominations, that's homosexuality. So those three sins bring the wrath of God upon Sodom. Now, it's pretty easy to see from chapter 19 how guilty the men of Sodom were. Look at what they do at at Lot's door. They come together to commit homosexual rape. They are all involved. This sin is widespread. Every man in the city, from the poor to the rich, the weak and the powerful, all come together. So it is easy for us to understand why God would rain fire upon the men of Sodom. But what about the women and children? Why did God kill the women and children along with the men? Well, the women, that's, that's not particularly hard to explain. Again, the book of Ezekiel, homosexuality, that's just one small part. Pride and, and arrogance and a lack of concern for the needy. The women were just as guilty as the men of those sins. You can see that in, in Lot's wife. Why did she turn around to look back at Sodom? Because she loved the luxuries of Sodom. She did not care about the violence. She did not care about the immorality or the oppression. She just wanted to enjoy the luxuries of Sodom. The women were as guilty as the men. So it makes sense why God would rain fire upon the men and women of of Sodom. But what about the children? What about the babies of Sodom? Why did they die in this punishment? That's often a question that atheists will ask you. If you check out an atheist blog, this is the number one objection that you will find on what they object to our faith about. You say that you believe in a loving God. How would a loving God kill babies? How would a loving God punish babies for the sins of their parents? How do you respond to that kind of objection? Well, it is actually not that hard. Just think for a moment. What do we, based on the rest of Scripture, what do we believe happens to a baby or a young child when they die? We believe they go to heaven. We believe that God's grace covers them. That's based on on something Paul talks about in Romans chapter 1. Human beings are held accountable to God once we reach some age of accountability where we can see God in creation and choose either to worship him or rebel against him. A baby, a young child, has not reached that age of accountability. If they die before reaching that age, then God automatically credits Christ's righteousness to them. So the children of Sodom, God was actually merciful to them. 
He spared them a lifetime living in a place like Sodom and brought them immediately home to him. God is always righteous. He delivers the innocent and he punishes the wicked. The destruction of Sodom is meant to show us that, to remind us of that, that God is unchangingly righteous. It's meant to remind us of that. It's also meant to warn us. Sodom and Gomorrah are a warning to us because just as God punished sin in the past, so he will punish sin in the future. Jesus talks about that in Luke 17. These are the words of Jesus. It was the same as happened in the days of Lot. They were eating, they were drinking, they were buying, they were selling, they were planting, they were building. But on the day that Lot went out from Sodom, it rained fire and brimstone from heaven and destroyed them all. It will be just the same on the day that the Son of Man is revealed. Jesus is coming again. Jesus is coming back. But when he comes back, he will not be the humble carpenter who dies on a cross. He will be the almighty king of kings who judges the living and the dead. Jesus is coming soon and he is bringing God's wrath with him. A day of judgment far bigger, far more terrifying than this day in Genesis 19. And there is only one way of escape from God's wrath on that day. Faith. Trust. Belief that Jesus himself died for your sins and rose from the dead so that you could have eternal life. We talked about that at length last week. The way to go from enemy of God who deserves God's wrath to child of God who receives God's love is by trusting that Jesus died for your sins so that you could have eternal life as a free gift. You don't work for God's love. You don't try to earn God's love. It's a free gift that you receive simply through faith. Just believing that Jesus died for your sins and rose from the dead, you are delivered from the righteous wrath of God. So truth number one, God is unchangingly righteous. He is terrifyingly righteous. Fortunately, that's balanced by truth number two. That's revealed in Genesis 19. Truth number two, our God is outrageously merciful. Now, you probably didn't see that the first time we read through. Genesis 19 doesn't feel like a lot of mercy. It feels like a lot of death and destruction. You see a lot of wrath, a lot of judgment. But there is actually a lot of mercy in this chapter. God gives mercy throughout. First of all, there's, there's mercy in granting Abraham's request. God would spare an entire city that was incredibly wicked if just 10 righteous people could be found in it. God would much prefer to bring grace rather than destruction. He would much prefer to bring grace rather than destruction. So there's mercy in granting Abraham's request. There's mercy in sending the angels. Have you thought about it? Why did God send these two angels to Sodom? Why did he send them there? Is it because he wasn't sure about their sin? Needs them to investigate? Is this like an episode of CSI? They got to go check out and see who's guilty, what's going on? No, God is omnipotent and omniscient. He knows all things. He understood Sodom completely. The reason he sent the angels was to give Sodom one more chance, one more opportunity to do the right thing. God was patient with Sodom. They were already incredibly wicked back in Genesis 13, which was more than a decade before Genesis 19. 
God waited patiently because he wants to give sinners the opportunity to repent. God always prefers repentance to destruction. So he waits as long as possible for sinners to turn from their wicked ways. God delayed punishment of Sodom as long as he could. So there was mercy in sending the angels. There was mercy in saving Lot. That's pretty clear. That's pretty easy to see. It is shocking, though, when you read and you see how God gave mercy to a man who was so undeserving of it and so resistant to it. Remember, Lot chose to live in Sodom. No one made him live there. He freely chose to live in Sodom. And when God tried to deliver Lot, Lot hesitated. He didn't want to leave the city. Man, I would have given up on the guy. And yet in patient mercy, God has his angels literally grab Lot under the armpits and carry him out of the city. God is stunningly merciful to Lot. And finally, surprisingly, there is mercy even in the destruction of Sodom. Even in raining fire down in Sodom, God is being merciful. How? He's being merciful to the rest of the world. To the rest of the human race, God is being merciful because number one, he's cutting off Sodom's ability to corrupt. You see, if God had allowed Sodom to continue to prosper, continue to grow, then the rest of the world would have seen that and been corrupted by their influence. Second, God is being merciful to the world because he's showing the rest of us the destructiveness of sin. Sodom is an object lesson. It is God showing the human race, this is what will happen if you walk in sin. When I said the penalty of sin is death, I meant it. It's real. So turn away before it's too late. Chapter 19 of Genesis looks like it's all wrath, but it is full of mercy. We have an outrageously merciful God. That's the second truth that we find in the ashes of Sodom. Third truth that we find in the ashes of Sodom, homosexual behavior is sin. We cannot read the account of Sodom and Gomorrah in our political climate and our cultural climate and not take a few minutes to pause and talk about homosexuality. So I want to talk for a minute with you about this issue that we're all reading about, we're all thinking about homosexuality. Is homosexuality really a sin? Clearly our world would say no. Is it really a sin? Well, actually it depends on how you define that term. It's very important to get your definitions right when you're thinking biblically and theologically. What do you mean by homosexuality? Do you mean same-sex attraction? You are attracted to a person of the same sex. Well, that is not sin. That's what you mean by homosexuality. That's not sin because God does not hold us accountable for our temptations. A temptation does not make you guilty. How do I know that? Because Jesus was tempted. He was tempted in the wilderness, and yet he was sinless. God does not hold you accountable for your temptations. Some people have same-sex attractions. Some people have different sex attractions. God doesn't hold us guilty for the temptations. You are not held accountable for your temptation. You are held accountable for how you respond to your temptations. You're held accountable for what you do with that temptation. If you embrace temptation and you let it turn into lust, you let it turn into sexual behavior, then it is sin. So if by homosexuality you mean lust or behavior, homosexual lust or homosexual sex, then yes, that is a sin. You are responsible for your behavior. The Bible is unflinchingly clear, both Old Testament and New Testament alike that homosexual lust and homosexual behavior in any context is sin. 
You see that in Genesis 19. Lot says it's wicked. Clearly it's wicked what these men want to do. You see it in the Old Testament, Leviticus 18. You shall not lie with a male as one lies with a female. It is an abomination. You see it in the New Testament, Romans 1. Paul says, for their women exchanged natural relations for those that are contrary to nature. And the men likewise gave up natural relations with women and were consumed with passion for one another. Men committing shameless acts with men and receiving in themselves a due penalty for their error. The Bible is absolutely clear. Old Testament and New Testament alike, the unchanging, unyielding truth of God, homosexual lust and homosexual behavior are sin. Same-sex attraction is not, but when you embrace that attraction, when you act on it, then it is sin. The Bible's clear. It is sin, but let's be clear with one another. It is not a sin that is worse than any other sin. Homosexual behavior is not in a special class of sin that makes you more guilty before God because that is not how sin works. God doesn't rank sins. Sin is sin. The penalty of all sin is death. There is no order or hierarchy to sin. You see that in Ezekiel. What were the sodomites guilty of? Yes, homosexuality, but also pride and a lack of concern for the poor. God puts all of those at the same level. All of them bring judgment. Now, if you're pushing back and you're saying, no, I really believe that homosexuality has to be worse than other sins, I would just take you to the words of Jesus. Here's what Jesus says in Matthew 11. And you, Capernaum, will you be exalted to heaven? You will be brought down to Hades. For if the mighty works done in you had been done in Sodom, it would have remained until this day. But I tell you that it will be more tolerable on the day of judgment for the land of Sodom than for you. There was no homosexuality in Capernaum. What was their sin? Self-righteousness. They didn't think they needed a savior. They were good, moral, religious people. What did they need with Jesus? And so Jesus is clear, it will be worse for you in the day of judgment than for Sodom. So if you want to rank sins, okay, be my guest, but make sure self-righteousness is at the top of your list. Homosexual behavior is not worse than any other sin. It is just a sin like all sins. Finally, last question that I want us to ask ourselves. Why should we tell people about this truth? This particular unmovable rock is incredibly uncomfortable to talk about in our society. So why shouldn't we stay silent about it? Why shouldn't we just accept people wherever they are, love them rather than than judge them? If we see two men or two women who really love each other and are really committed to each other, shouldn't we embrace that? That is what our society thinks. That is what our society wants us to do. They hate it when we judge people. They hate it when we say that homosexual behavior is sin, when we say that gay marriage is not okay. So why should we talk about this uncomfortable truth? Let me take you back to the illustration that we began with. I want you to think for a moment, that captain in the battleship, he really wanted to keep going straight. He really wanted to set his course in life. And and when the lighthouse operator told him, hey, you can't go that way, the captain got angry. He got offended. He was hurt. So would it not be more loving for the lighthouse operator to just embrace whatever the captain wants to do? Hey, you've got as much right to these waters as me. Who am I to judge what you want to do? You do as you see fit. I accept it and approve it. But that that wouldn't be love. That'd be cruelty. 
Because at some point, that battleship would run aground on the rocks of reality and everyone would die. Men and women, we need to understand if the result of sin really is pain and death, and if homosexual behavior really is sin, then to love is to warn and to approve is to hate. Please understand that. If the penalty of sin really is death, and if homosexual behavior really is sin, then it's a very simple equation. If you tell someone that it is okay what they're doing, this homosexual behavior, you are not being loving to them, you are being hateful to them. You are remaining silent to the fact that they are cruising unknowingly for rocks that will destroy them. If you really love the homosexuals in your life, you must speak up, you must warn them. But do it lovingly, do it graciously, do it humbly. You need to tell them that their behavior is sin, but you need to do it in a way where they understand you are no better than them. You are a sinner just like them. You need to communicate your unconditional love. No, you don't approve of their behavior, but you will accept them as a person. You will love them. You will stay with them as a person. But you gotta be clear. Speak truth. Don't be silent. Don't accept. Don't approve what they're doing. That's not love. That's hate. Now, society will call you a bigot for that. Society will compare you to a racist for that. Day is coming when you will lose your job for that because you were willing to tell someone that homosexual behavior was sinful. So let me ask you, do you love homosexuals enough to risk losing your reputation for the sake of warning them that their sin is going to bring destruction and pain into their lives? Are you willing to say to a homosexual in your life, I love you so much that I don't care what society says about me. I don't care what they think about me. I will not lie to you about the pain and destruction that will come if you continue to practice homosexuality. To love is to warn. To approve is to hate. It's very simple. It's very clear. That's the third inescapable truth that we discover in the ashes of Sodom. Finally, the fourth truth, which is really the most applicable to us in this room, the one that really hits home the most, truth number four that we learn from Lot. Compromise with sin destroys. Compromising with sin will destroy you. What do we know about Lot? Well, we know a lot from the book of Genesis, but we actually know a lot from the New Testament as well. Peter talks about Lot. In the book of 2 Peter, here's what he says. Peter says he rescued righteous Lot, oppressed by the sensual conduct of unprincipled men, for by what he saw and heard, that righteous man, while living among them, felt his righteous soul tormented day after day by their lawless deeds. Peter is explicit. Lot is righteous. This man who was willing to give away his daughters to be raped by the crowd is righteous. Now, for some of you, that's really upsetting. Some of you, you have no idea how to fit that into your theological system. You've got to first define your terms carefully. What does Peter mean when he says that Lot is righteous? Well, that term, righteous, we talked about it last week. It does not mean moral. It is not about moral righteousness. Lot was not a moral man. He was not a good man. He was an incredibly evil, foolish man who's probably tied for worst father ever in the history of the human race. 
Now, righteous, it doesn't mean moral. What righteous means is rightly related to God through faith. At some point in his life, Lot had chosen to believe in the God of the Bible, to entrust himself to the God of the Bible. And as we talked about last week, the moment a person chooses to trust in the God of the Bible, they are justified. They are declared righteous in the sight of God now and forever to become a child of God. And so, yes, we will see Lot in heaven. Yeah, you will. And what that tells us, what that proves to us in no uncertain terms is that for a believer, obedience is expected but not inevitable. The normal Christian life, the life God expects of you is a life of growing obedience. Sin is never excusable for us. We are expected by God to grow in obedience, but God will not force that obedience. We must choose to cooperate. We must choose to obey. If we don't, if we choose to go down the path of Lot, we can go so far that we could do something like Lot did. We really can't go that far down the path of sin and darkness. And if we do, it won't cost us our salvation. Now, you can't lose eternal life. It is, by definition, eternal. You can't become an unchild of God once you are already a child of God. Now, it won't cost you your salvation, but it will destroy you. It will cost you everything in life you hold dear. Just look at Lot. His choice to compromise with sin, his choice to live in sin, costs him his home, it costs him his livelihood, it costs him his wife, and it so corrupts his daughters that they basically rape him. That is what it cost Lot to walk in sin. That is what it will cost a believer to walk in sin. We could end up on that same path. We could share his same fate. And so let's ask ourselves, what led Lot to such depths of sin and destruction? Well, let me walk you through. Actually, Lot's failure did not begin in Genesis chapter 19. Look at Genesis chapter 13. Genesis 13, starting in verse 10. If you recall, we studied chapter 13. Lot and Abraham are so blessed. They have so much wealth, such large herds, that they cannot live together. They must split up. So Abraham gives Lot a choice. Hey, look around and live wherever you want. Here's what Lot chooses. Verse 10. Lot lifted up his eyes and saw all the valley of the Jordan, that it was well watered everywhere. This was before the Lord destroyed Sodom and Gomorrah. It was like the garden of the Lord, like the land of Egypt as you go to Zor. So Lot chose for himself all the valley of the Jordan, and Lot journeyed eastward, thus they separated from each other. Abraham settled in the land of Canaan, while Lot settled in the cities of the valley and moved his tents as far as Sodom. Now the men of Sodom were wicked exceedingly and sinners against the Lord. Lot's failure begins when he looks around and sees Sodom and is drawn towards it. He's drawn towards the the wealth and prosperity, the comfort of the city of Sodom, but he knows it's a wicked place, so notice his first compromise. He's not willing to live in the city. No, he's going to stay in his tent. You, You can hear the gears turning in Lot's mind. I know Sodom is a super wicked place, but there's a lot of luxury there, a lot of wealth, a lot of opportunity, so I won't live in this city. I'll just live near the city. I'll set my tent up outside so my family can still enjoy all that Sodom can offer without actually living in it. Well, that lasts for not very long. Guy gets tired of living in a tent, just like any of us would. And so after a while, he decides, I'd really rather live in the city. I'd rather have a home. I'd rather have all the security that that provides. At some point between 13 and 19, 
he moves in. He moves into Sodom, he buys a home. He enjoys the luxuries, the, the enjoyments of Sodom. Now remember from 2 Peter 2, Peter said that, that the sin, the wickedness of Sodom, it disturbed Lot. It did, but apparently not enough for Lot to say no to all the pleasures that Sodom could provide to him and his family. So Lot moves into the city, and over time, apparently, the conviction in Lot's soul, the the fact that Sodom's wickedness bothered him, must have grown less and less, because by the time we see Lot in chapter 19, where is he? He's not just in Sodom, he's in the gate. In the ancient world, the gate was where the leading men of a city gathered to do business and to make decisions for the city. Lot's not a visitor in Sodom anymore. Now he's one with them. He's making decisions with them. He's part of the life of Sodom. Notice he's engaged his daughters to Sodomite men. Lot and his whole family have become one with Sodom. Notice the progression. At first, just a little compromise. I'll just move near to Sodom. Then another little compromise. I'll just move into Sodom. Then another little compromise. I'll just become one with Sodom. By the end of his story, he is totally wrapped up. Sodom is inside of the guy. It is inside of the heart of all of his family. And that choice ends up completely destroying them. Lot made one little compromise after another until Sodom had drawn him completely into its trap and then destroyed him. It reminds me a lot. I don't know if you guys have ever been at a campfire or watching a candle outside and seen a moth come close to that candle. Have you ever seen what a moth does? They're, they're drawn to the light and the heat. It's very comfortable to near, be near that flame. So a moth will, will fly closer and closer and closer to the flame until suddenly, poof, catches on fire and it's gone. But that's exactly how sin works in the life of a believer. It draws you closer and closer and closer until poof, destroys everything you hold dear in life, just like it did for Lot. I'm sure that moth was getting more and more comfortable the closer it got until, boom, it was too late. That's what sin will do to us. It will draw us closer and closer, one little compromise after another, enjoying the heat and light of sin a little bit more, a little bit more, a little bit more until, poof, it destroys you. So let's apply this to our lives. What do we do with this truth as we think about what God is is teaching us? Well, For believers, for us who are believers in Jesus Christ, what does Jesus want from us in life? What does Jesus want from you? Very simply, Jesus wants you to live in the world, but not be of the world. Wants you to be in the world, but not of the world. Wants you to be in the world. Jesus doesn't want you to go run for the hills. Doesn't want you to live in a bomb shelter. He wants you to live in this world as a witness, doing life with unbelievers, showing them the love and truth of Jesus Christ. But he doesn't want you to become of the world. He doesn't want you to be conformed to the values and ways of this world that we live in. He wants you to remain distinct. So here's the question you need to ask yourself. As you do life in this sinful world, are you being faithful to Jesus to love what Jesus loves, to do what Jesus did, or are you becoming conformed to the world, loving what the world loves, doing what the world does? If you look at your life and the lives of your family, your kids, and you see more and more conformity to the ways of the world, then it is time for a change. It's time to make a change, a change that may be painful, that may be difficult, but you need to make a change before it's too late. So I'll give you some practical examples 
Let's say you look at your job. You look at the place where you work, and, and you work in a really sinful place. You work with a lot of unbelievers, and, and your goal is to be a witness there. You want to be a light in that workplace, but you have found that over time, they are having more of an influence on you than you on them. You're beginning to think and speak and act like the unbelievers around you, and you just can't resist it. Well, if you find yourself being more and more conformed to the world at work, then it is probably time to resign. Even if you don't know where your next job is going to be, I promise you it is better to live on welfare than work in Sodom. You need to do whatever it takes to keep yourself from being conformed to the world. College students, you live with roommates. Maybe you live with a, a number of unbelieving roommates and your goal is to be a witness to them. You want to be a light to them, but you have found over the months, over the years, that rather than you being an influence to them, they are being an influence to you. Despite your best efforts, you are thinking like them more, speaking like them more, acting like them more and more over time, then it is probably time to look for a new place to live. Even if that means living on someone's couch, even if that meant moving back in with your parents, better to live with your parents than sleep in Sodom. Do whatever it takes to keep yourself from being conformed to this world. Parents, let's think about our responsibility for a moment. God has called us to raise our kids in a way that is godly, to protect them from the influences of this world that would destroy them as best we can. Well, parents, you've, you've made a good choice. You've chosen to raise your family in Bryan College Station, and relatively speaking, this is a pretty good place, pretty moral, pretty supportive environment. So you've chosen a good place to live. You're not living in Sodom, but let me ask you, are you inviting Sodom into your home? That is the danger of the internet and cable TV. You don't have to live in Sodom anymore to get Sodom in your living room. You can invite it in. So think for yourself. Ask yourself, what are you filling your mind with? What are you allowing to influence your thoughts and your speech and your actions? And then think, what are you allowing your children to fill their minds with? What are their influences? What are they watching? What are they reading? What apps are they playing with? Who are they corresponding with? You need to be responsible for that. Parents, it is our responsibility to create a supporting environment for our children. Now, that will sometimes force you to have to say no to them. Your child will want a phone. Your child will want an iPad. Your child will want a computer. Your child will want a TV in their room. Don't give them any of those things until you have set up clear and appropriate boundaries and safeguards. And if you can't do that, if, if it's just too dangerous, you need to be willing to say no to your child, even if it makes them angry. You need to love your kids enough to make them angry if it means protecting them from Sodom. You've got to protect your kids. Set up clear and appropriate safeguards and, and filters and protections, and then find out where are they going online? What are they watching? What are they reading? You're not being nosy. You're being a parent know where they're going online, and talk with them about it. It is your responsibility to train them how to interact with the influences online. Yeah, they probably aren't going to be real happy about that. They may not like that. They may be angry about that. That's okay. One day they will thank you, I promise. Some of you college students out there, you're not ready to thank your, your parents yet for saying no to you. You're just not ready yet. You will be one day, I promise you. It, it will probably be the day that you're talking to a friend whose parents never said no. And you find out the pain and suffering that choice unleashed in their lives. Then you're going to pick up the phone. Say, thank you, mom and dad. Parents, it's our responsibility 
to create a safe and supportive environment for our children. There is nothing on the internet or on TV that is worth the price of compromising with sin. So as we look at Genesis 19, yeah, it's an incredibly painful chapter. Really awful chapter. Prefer to not even read it, but it's there because we need to be reminded as followers of Jesus Christ is that for us, for believers, if we compromise with sin, it will draw us closer and closer until it destroys everything we hold dear just like it did for Lot. Don't compromise with sin. Don't fall in love with the world like he did. Do whatever it takes to walk faithfully with the Lord. I want us to end by praying for God's help. We need his help desperately. We need his help if we're to avoid the tragedy that Lot experienced. Heavenly Father, we come before you. We thank you, first of all, that you are so gracious. Lord, we confess we are no better than the Sodomites. We are all sinners desperately in need of your grace. Apart from your grace, we would all experience nothing but punishment and judgment. So thank you, God, that in love you have offered us salvation through Jesus Christ. I pray for anyone in this room, Lord, who who has not yet grasped the truth of the gospel, who thinks that your love is still something to earn, something to work for, something to merit. I pray that they would see that it's not. It's a free gift that your son purchased with his own blood, I pray that they would receive eternal life simply through faith, just trusting in Jesus. For all of us, Lord, who have trusted in Jesus, Lord, we confess sin is still so strong within us. It tempts us every day. Lord, we love this world. It is so attractive to us. Please, Father, protect us from the enticement of this world. Help us to believe that the penalty of sin is death, even for, for believers like us, not eternal death, but, but physical death and a life of death. I pray, Father, that you would help us to believe that, this, that sin is never worth it, that the temporary pleasures it offers are never worth the price it extracts from us. I pray, Father, that we would be brave and courageous in your spirit to do whatever it takes to protect ourselves and our kids from the sinful influences of this world. I pray that we would live in the world doing life with unbelievers, loving them, showing them the love of Christ, but that we would not become of the world, that we would not be conformed to the ways of this world, that we would be distinct and different and stand out as lights. I pray, Father, that we would be faithful to share truth with people in grace, humbly, gently telling them even these uncomfortable truths of your word. And finally, Lord, we thank you and we praise you that you have not left us in the dark that you have given us light in your word to show us what is true, what is good, what is right. You have not left it up to us to try to figure that out. Thank you for giving us truth. Help us to be willing to submit our lives to the truths of your word. In the name of your son, Jesus, we pray. Amen. God bless you guys. Have a great week.